0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for Movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.
2: The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world.
0: How serious even is climate change? And when should we start building our rafts?
2: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything, yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. If you listen to Monster Talk, chances are you enjoy a good fright. But is that all there is to monster legends and ghost stories? On Monster Talk, we like to look at what science has to say about such things, and tonight, We begin a two-part look at the scientific investigation of the paranormal. In this, part one, we'll discuss two ghostly legends and some of the best practices of historical ghost investigations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man Welcome to another episode of Monster Talk, the podcast equivalent of turning the light on in the closet. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford and Dr. Karen Stolzno, we talk about monsters. Tonight, we begin a two-part discussion of how to do historical paranormal investigation. We'll be using ghost cases, and this episode gives two different ghost stories with different conclusions, but you'll note there are many similarities as well. Pay attention to Karen and Ben's stories, and you'll hear these common elements. How to pick a case to investigate. Identifying what phenomena is being reported, finding witnesses or written testimony, checking to see if stories match the facts, finding corroborative evidence, and finding falsifying evidence. In part two, we'll go into more detail and I'll discuss my investigation into the ghosts of the SS Watertown, and we'll discuss Ben Radford's upcoming book on scientific paranormal investigation. Stay tuned.
0: Monster Dog. Okay, so,
2: so this is actually, this should be our best audio quality ever. Until two weeks from now, when I get my new mic, um,
0: and our least interesting show. And yeah, our
2: least say. interesting show.
3: Sadly <laughs> enough, the content won't match the uh, the quality, but that's okay.
2: Uh, we'll we'll make it short then.
0: Was <laughs> <laughs> any joking? Come on, we're all ghost hunters now, aren't we?
2: Yes, of course.
0: This is our thing.
2: Yeah. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about. I always say tonight, like, everybody sits down for a nice evening by the fire to listen to Monster Talk. I don't know what they're doing.
0: That sounds nice, though.
2: It does. I that's wish the I way it
0: that. should be listened to, I think.
3: It sip some whiskey and listen to us. On an
2: old radio machine, which is how our audio quality is usually set up.
0: <laughs> through a Frank's box.
2: Through a Frank's box. Which <laughs> a little is cat curled
3: the... up at the corner.
2: That's the filter I've been using.
0: <laughs> With a dunce cap.
3: Mm. <laughs> a tinfoil dunce cap. <laughs> well, that's quite a picture. <laughs> it should be our new logo. We, we can have Daniel uh, draw us that. That'd be great. Crazy.
2: Yeah. Um, anyway, where were we? Uh, so, so, so I wanted to talk about uh, ghost investigations, but also specifically, I, I think we're going to have a few shows on ghost investigations or monster investigations. And I wanted to talk about, um, start, start out with historical investigations because that's the kind um, I'm most able to do. <laughs> Me too. It's because you know doing active investigations with a lot of field work is uh, time-consuming, and you have to have the free time and the ability to coordinate with the witnesses or the people who are having the experiences. Um, but a lot of skeptics uh, who might be able to do some of these historical investigations may not realize that this whole opportunity is out there for them to find a case that they're interested in and look into it. So I thought maybe if we talked a bit about some of the ones we've worked on, uh we could talk about um how to do uh, such an investigation and some of the cases we've done
0: i think they're good ones for armchair skeptics aren't they
2: they are cuz you you know i mean you don't have to be in an armchair you could be in a library chair <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah i think we lost ben
3: no no i'm 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 listening i'm <laughs> waiting for something intelligible to respond to <laughs> he's, oh, he's crafting a
2: foil dunce see you
0: ben <laughs> <laughs> But I think all investigations, to some extent, have to involve historical research. I think that's a sort of fundamental prior step.
2: Yeah, and I think that's probably true to some extent for both the uh, skeptical investigators and the um, non-skeptical investigators. I get the impression sometimes that um, when people – well, I shouldn't make allegations, but it seems like some of the so-called psychics – May have been doing some very rudimentary investigations from a historical perspective before they walk on scene.
0: That's a hot reading.
2: It sure yeah. is. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, I that you come across that a lot, where you know there will be investigation by some uh, so-called ghost hunter group or you know, paranormal investigators, and they'll they'll trot in some friend of theirs who has, who claims that they communicate with ghosts, and and you know as you said, sometimes they've already done previous research on it, or other times they're they may live locally, um, you know they don't necessarily bring in psychic mediums from across the country; it may be someone who's regional. And in that case, it's very likely that they may have grown up, you know, hearing stories about who was supposed to live there or some of the phenomena there.
0: Mm, that reminds me of that Bridie Murphy case, just by picking up these things by osmosis, living mm. somewhere and just hearing the stories from people in the
3: town. Exactly, the for, reincarnation case.
2: Uh, well, I was say, for those who don't know the Bridie Murphy case, uh, that's probably one of the most famous uh, previous lives case, right? Mm-hmm. Excellent. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Not to be confused with, who's it Audie Murphy? <laughs> yeah,
3: that was the, uh, the, the gay cowboy from the 30s.
2: No, the, the, the most decorated uh, war hero from World War II. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, so.
3: my, my bad. Right.
0: Easily confused.
2: You're thinking of Audrey Hepburn.
3: Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. Um, well, why, why don't we start out by uh, each of us? I mean, each of us has you know some some good investigations under our belt. Why don't one each of us sort of pick a pick one of our historical ghost investigations and you know, sort of give a little intro on that?
2: Yeah, actually, uh, Karen, I was just looking at yours on the the Waverly um, uh, Asylum and uh, A sanatorium, that sen- sen- that sanatorium uh, right? Exactly. In real life, right?
0: <laughs> but that's interesting that you should say asylum. I mean, it's a bit of an asylum of ghost hunters nowadays. But uh, for a period, it was a uh, a home for the elderly. Some call it a geriatrics hospital. Um, I think it was called Woodhaven, and that was a period of maybe about uh, I think ten years or uh, twenty years. But before that, it was a sanatorium for people suffering tuberculosis. And where is that? It's in Louisville, mm. Kentucky. I've been criticised. the The article that I wrote is on bad language at the moment, just on the the homepage. Uh, I've left it up there because I did an interview recently and had to speak about this, so I wanted people to be able to go back and uh, and look at what I've written. And uh, I had a number of believers who were sort of set upon me and criticised me because not for the article itself, but just for the introduction where I talk about how difficult it is to find the the premises themselves. And so this is going back some years ago, maybe about five years ago, that I did this investigation. And uh, it was at a time where it wasn't... The the directions were not advertised online, so it was hard to find where this place was. It was more word of mouth, and it had been on shows like Taps. Uh, so really, the owners were trying to keep it under wraps because they had so many uh, incidents of people who were trespassing and breaking into the premises. So um, it's... Uh, just off the Dixie Highway anyway, near a place called Bobby Nichols Golf Course. And uh, anyway, so it was a sanatorium for people with tuberculosis. And the biggest claim is that there were 63,000 deaths which took place there. So there were uh, almost 50 years of operation. But as I said, for part of that time, uh, it was a a hospital for elderly people. uh, And for the rest of the time, it was a sanatorium. So that's quite a claim, 63,000 deaths. I went there. I did one of their tours. They've got overnight ghost tours. They've got history tours. So I did one of the the history slash ghost tours, and they've got a so-called historian on the premises, and he was repeating that claim as fact, and he also stated that between one to three people died every hour, so that they were having a minimum of about 24 deaths per day.
3: So Uh, the Black Plague or something.
0: It is sounding like that, and I mean, there are a number of movies and books about this particular place, and uh, if you really follow what they say, uh, then the place is just a a building of horrors, Uh, and that there's a a place that, an area that they used, uh, they call it the body chute, but it was actually used for laundry, uh, and just for carrying things on the premises in general, but people claim that so many people died there that they were moving them through this chute, this body shoot, and it was a full-time job in and of itself. And they're uh, just moving these corpses down this shaft. So uh, I was in contact with a historian and his name escapes me, a true historian who had a relative who died there. And so he's wanting to put together some facts uh, about Waverly Hills. And uh, so he really takes umbrage at uh, the claim that there were 63,000 deaths. And see, there's another factor involved. There was a fire, of course, in which a lot of the records of the hospital were destroyed. So it is difficult to calculate how many deaths took place. But this fellow uh, read an autobiography by one of the doctors who had been on site there. And the figure that he arrives at is a great deal lower. It's about 7,500 people. Uh, who apparently died there over the 50 years of operation. Uh, so that's a great deal smaller than 63,000. Dr. Frank Stewart, in his autobiography, states instead that I think there were a maximum of about 150 deaths per annum. Uh, that was the, the highest figure anyway, and that was with the return of World War two victims. So you can see that figure 7,500, and it could potentially be a little bit higher or a little bit lower. Uh, That is just an estimate, but based on the autobiography of this doctor who worked there for, I think, about a decade uh, and claims that the highest figure was 152 people who died uh, in one year. And that was really taking into consideration uh, people coming back from uh, World War II, where you can imagine uh, under those circumstances, they would have been um, you know, picking up all sorts of illnesses and bringing them back into the country. So that would have been a worst-case scenario. It would,
3: so, it, it would be surprising if there weren't more during um, that time. It would be surprising if there weren't more. You didn't see a higher per annum uh, during that time anyway.
0: Exactly. So potentially we could be looking at a lot fewer deaths uh, than that, if that's the highest figure. But there are many other claims uh, of the the place as well, that there were lots of cruel and brutal treatments which took place in some of those uh, was supposedly administered to people when it was an elderly, a hospital for the elderly. People claim that electroconvulsive therapy was very common there, but I don't see that that would necessarily have been the case if it was a, a hospital for elderly people. Uh, then having ECT is not really, it's not like it was a hospital, a psychiatric hospital of any kind. Right. And certainly in those days too, uh, they for a number of years up until the 40s, they didn't have antibiotics which were useful for tuberculosis And so they had a number of treatments which by today's standards would be considered to be very painful uh, and just very basic Uh, and so they weren't of much use. I think they used to, and I've mentioned some of them in the article, uh, but I think they used to try and inflate the lungs or to also puncture the lungs and deflate them so that they could take out lesions. So some of these treatments were pretty rough going and didn't work. So people were in continued pain and uh, most conditions were, uh, when they would get to that extent, would be terminal. Uh, so I guess they were really scraping the bottom of the barrel for their treatments and doing whatever it was that they could uh, as a last-ditch attempt for some people who were clearly dying of tuberculosis. So there were also claims that one of the rooms was a slaughterhouse. Um
3: because <laughs> don 't all hospitals have a slaughterhouse on the premises
0: <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, so you can just uh butcher animals for um for the kitchen there there you go and but this room was uh alternatively used as a an autopsy room, so not only i guess they talk about multitasking, not only would they perform autopsies on patients who died, but they would then bring in a sheep and um, kill it for dinner.
2: What about ghosts? I mean, so w- w- when did the ghost stories start?
0: The ghost stories. Uh, there are plenty of ghosts. There's there are shadow people, and there's the ghost of Little Timmy who moves balls. <laughs> so,
3: <laughs> Little Timmy's balls. Tell us about Little Timmy's balls.
0: <laughs> he has red balls, big red balls, and. <laughs>
3: Did you see these? Like see you they... just you just took this on on uh, on you know, on someone's. I word. saw
0: the balls.
3: <laughs> saw, I saw little balls. Timmy's balls. This is, are you getting this, Blake? We're, this is being recorded.
0: <laughs> awesome. yeah. So people people bring along their own balls for Timmy.
2: <laughs> so people bring their balls. So Timmy, like when you go visit, Timmy will play with your balls.
0: <laughs> Did you bring we your balls,
3: you. Karen?
2: <laughs>
0: I, I didn't have any, but there were balls there, so I availed myself of those. So
2: you play oh. with someone else's balls.
0: <laughs> That's right.
2: Okay, great. Awesome. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, there were red balls everywhere, and people bring them in because Timmy apparently moves them. So it's not a breeze. It's not the wind or anything like that. It's Timmy. It's his ghost.
2: Now, when you say balls... Inflatable,
0: inflatable balls. Inflatable balls, um, balls right. Inflatable um, balls. Okay. Medicine like balls, whatever, whatever balls you've got hanging around, I guess. Usually, the kind, I guess, you get in... Uh, a. Target or something like that, so just bouncy balls Yeah. Um, and were there, um, that, were
3: there, the look
0: can play with.
3: Were there like videotaped images of this where you could actually see the balls moving independently on their own, or what was the quality of evidence for these? Well,
0: I, I think TAPS had some footage, but that doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, other than that, it's all anecdotal, so it's what people claim that they see, and just about everyone who goes there is a believer. I mean, they're wanting to turn the place into a, a haunted hotel. So it's another one of these most haunted places in America, like everywhere else. And so they're really wanting to find the capital so that they can turn this place into a a hotel and they're leveraging the stories there. So there's also an apparition of a female who's shackled and covered in incisions and screams, help me. Um, So I think that stems from the whole idea of, of there being an abattoir or a slaughterhouse there as well. Hmm. and probably the most famous story would be that of the uh, the nurse of room 502. So here's a bit of intrigue. Uh, so I'll read this from the article. I've got it in front of me. The most common version of the story tells of an unmarried nurse who had an affair with a married doctor in 1935 or 1926 or 1930. So she became pregnant, and her grisly solution was to abort herself and flush the fetus down a commode. That's a quote. In her shame, she hanged herself from the rafters of room 502. Wearing a long white nurse's gown covered in blood, she now haunts this room along with a ghostly companion.
2: You know, just if she was going to kill herself anyway, why bother with the abortion?
0: That's a really good point. (laughs)
2: Like,
3: if you could inject logic into this, (laughs) this is going to be a very short conversation. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Go ahead.
0: (laughs) Uh, so other than that, there's another nurse who contracted tuberculosis. She jumped to her death from this fifth floor room as well. Uh, and there's a fellow called Ralph who haunts the, the halls of the third floor. However, uh, there aren't any records. I know I've just said that a lot of these records were damaged, but there's, there are no historical records that claim that these people exist at all. Uh, so they just seem to be anecdotes.
2: Yeah, they sound like urban legends.
0: Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to stories of hospitals uh, and you know, sanatoriums, you've always got haunted, uh, they're always haunted by nurses and doctors, aren't
2: they? Yeah. Well, and just to clarify that, it's the lack of specificity um, that, that I'm saying why I think it sounds like an urban legend. It's not just because it's a ghost story. But because it's kind of vague, the dates move around. People don't agree on the general details. Those are kind of like the hallmarks of a. Uh, a oh,
0: in, indeed, they're, they're very non-specific. Or if they are specific, they're conflicting.
3: What struck me when Karen was talking about the story was uh, she was describing the the doctor in the white and it reminded me of uh, Lady Macbeth, you know, and the the whole gothic. Idea of a a wailing woman dressed in white, covered in blood, uh, you know, or or the uh, the uh, the story of La Llorona uh, here in New Mexico of the woman who drowned her children and then was lamenting and wailing and whatnot. So that See, that's
2: the river woman, right?
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. it fits in you know perfectly with uh, with you know the, the urban legend and the motif. So
0: mm, yeah, it does sound like a traditional story. Uh, so
3: so what was the what was the reaction you said that you'd gotten uh, some flack or some static or whatever you call it in Australia uh, from from some of the believers but did they did, did the people who contact you did they did they dispute your your uh, your analysis or did they just sort of nitpick at a couple of things and bitch oh, about look, that
0: Oh look I don't think that they read beyond the first paragraph they were really I guess trying to chip away at my uh, at my my research by um, treating just the first few lines where i say it was a difficult place to find but as i said this was written five years ago uh so the information was just very spartan then nowadays it's really turned into a big tourist industry for this particular place and so they're really it's just a a non-issue for them to treat
3: well really karen Um, you you should you know seriously i mean i don't i don't mean to you know criticize a fellow investigator but you you should have known that five years later it was going to be easy to find i mean come on
0: well, I guess you
3: know, I have, Obviously it it invalidates your entire investigation.
0: Well, that's the way that they perceive it. Yes. So, I guess I need to just go in there and edit that section out because uh <laughs> that
2: then the rest of it that. is factual. Okay. Well, so how did you pick this case to investigate?
0: Uh well, I happened to be in St. Louis, Missouri for a conference. And it was only 200 miles away. This was a real flavor of the month with Taps and uh, all of the various ghost hunting TV shows at the time. And uh, it was just too close. Uh, I mean, I'm living in California, and so it's a great distance from there. But being in St. Louis, it was close enough. I just had to make the trip for the weekend uh, to go and check it out. A lot of interesting doings at the place. Before it was sold to the current couple, uh, Tina and Charles Mattingly, it was going to be turned into a big, or they were going to place a large Jesus Christ statue on the building. Uh, I think Christ the Redeemer Foundation was interested, and they they purchased the estate and wanted to um, build a statue like the one in Rio de Janeiro, (laughs) (laughs) which is a, a strange thing. And I think they didn't get the funding for that, and they didn't get the support from the local council. Uh, so they lost out money, and the place just really fell prey to trespassers and vandals. And I think it's from that that the, the haunted reputation arose.
3: For Waverly, were you were you one of the first? It was my understanding that you were, were one of the first, if not the first, uh, real skeptical investigator to do anything there. Was that, Had there been other people who'd done stuff before you, or were you pretty much the, the, the first in?
0: this fellow's got a, an excellent website where he's really trying to compile historical research about Waverly Hills.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, he, as I said, for personal reasons, uh, he has a personal investment in that. And so I would say, I would call him the first skeptic, even though he may not call himself a skeptic, the first person to do to undertake critical thinking when it comes to a lot of the claims.
2: So looking back at the, uh, the methodologies that you use for investigating historical cases, I wanted to talk about some of those. We talked about how you picked this case. You picked this case because it was already prominent at the time and you had the opportunity to be in that area, which is, you know, this opportunity attack, right? So Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, and and I think, you know, you need to have some sort of interest in the case in order to really do a good investigation because these are not easy. This is a lot of work.
0: I guess I'm interested in alternative medicine and just medicine in general. So this appealed to me. Um, as a case for a lot of the treatments that people did undergo there. I was interested in that too.
2: So I think one of the things we have to do as investigators is write down what phenomena are being reported and then who were the witnesses or were there any witnesses mm-hmm. and then kind of figure out what evidence there is to support the claims. And mm-hmm. so in this particular case, you heard lots of stories, but aside from um, uh, some TAPS video, did you see any evidence that anything was really going on?
0: Uh, I think the evidence basically involves EVP, so the collection of electronic voice phenomena, and this would by and large be collected from people who have attended the ghost tours, so they're going there specifically looking for evidence. Uh, And other than that, it's primarily anecdotal. Uh, I spoke with staff there. I spoke with their historian. Uh, i did a lot of research online i checked out books as well and um, statistics in general that i could find and uh that was the the best evidence that i could come up with i mean we're talking evps and um just a couple of photographs of the ball having moved that's about it so nothing captured red-handed and the the quality of the EVPs—I've um, got some of them on here on, uh, my, in my article—and their messages, like one of them is "Oh my Lord," and <laughs> another one is "Got to get out of here, Bo." So <laughs> they're quite meaningless. Other than that, also some blurry images of orbs the, and just anecdotal evidence.
3: Nothing like uh, Timmy saying "Quit playing with my balls," or <laughs> I, that's what I would expect
0: no no nothing that that good they've they've also had uh with that 6 hour halloween um haunting episode that was shown on television they had read or they had viewers who would phone in and also claim that they'd seen things so you'd have people just calling in and saying i saw a floating face in the background and so that was all counted as evidence so
2: the evps did they sound like they were noise or did they sound like maybe it was picking up other people talking or
0: you have so many people that are going through there and I think that they would account for a lot of these shadow people too, that we're just dealing with other groups of people being given the tour. Uh you've got concurrent tours. So I think from the EVPs that I've heard, they seem to be background noise, humans. Really I'm not we're not talking cross modulations or anything that complex. It's just people being in the background and you've got people running around screaming. Uh you're bound to just pick up background noise. <laughs> Gary Busey.
2: Oh, there you go. <laughs> Did you happen to notice how many rooms were there? Like how many beds they would have been able to ho- house at one time?
0: Ah, I do have some more statistics online. I think they could hold up to about four hundred people. Uh, initially, when it opened, they had about fifty. They could hold up to fifty patients, and so in the end, oh, it I see it right here. It's
2: to city, the city built to treat it to four hundred patients.
0: Yes, and it's so, you, there's a photograph underneath too. The premises are absolutely enormous. It looks like an old. Uh, expensive public school or something.
2: Yeah, it does. It looks very gothic kind of. So that would have effectively caused the entire population of the hospital to be wiped out 157 times to to Mm. get that 63,000 people.
0: Yeah, it just sounds very unrealistic. Uh, Yeah, it really does.
2: I don't think I'd want to go to the hospital if that was the death rate. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, holy crap, just leave me out in the street.
0: (laughs) So it's a very impressive figure, but I was immediately skeptical yeah. when I heard about that.
3: Did you challenge the uh, anybody there, or you just sort of let it be?
0: I did challenge the historian a number of times, uh, but he was woeful and couldn't really talk beyond what, beyond a couple of stock phrases and things he was parroting. So I don't think he was a historian so much as a tour guide. Monster dog. Ben, tell
2: me about the chemo ghost case that you did.
3: The chemo ghost. Well, yeah, that was the case that I did. Actually, it was published in the May-June issue, uh, May-June 2009 issue of Skeptical Inquirer. It was a local case. When I grew up here in Albuquerque in New Mexico, I had... Always heard of the the Chemo Theater and its supposed ghost as I was growing up. The Chemo Theater it's a it's an Art Deco style uh, old time uh, theater was built in 1926 and it's in downtown Albuquerque. It's still used today for you know, everything from burlesque shows to movies to plays and whatnot. But it had always been it's a very distinctive looking uh, theater. Again, partly because it's this sort of basically the the story always went that there uh, was a A young boy haunting the theater, and and again, I I had never really given it much much thought one way or the other. And then, uh, you know, I lived in Buffalo for ten years uh, working for Skeptical Inquirer, and then when I moved back about three years ago, I decided it was high time to uh, do some ghost investigating in my my backyard, and so. I went and uh, started looking into the the, um, the haunted chemo theater, which is actually one of the most uh, supposedly one of the most haunted theaters in the American Southwest. Um, you know, it's just sort of I guess if you if you look at other reputedly haunted places, uh, you know certainly Texas, Arizona, Colorado. It's one of, one of the top ones, particularly if you're talking about theaters. The story goes that even today, when people put on plays and do performances at the Chemo, they will leave donuts for a ghost. This seems a little odd to me. i mean, you know bakery goods for ghosts was a little. Odd, but uh, it turned out that um, the story goes that if if you didn't uh, give this sort of sacrifice for this ghost, little Bobby, the 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 boy who's supposed to haunt the theater, would ruin the play, would go out of his way to make sure everything went wrong. So. Allegedly, to this very day, anytime anybody, you know, the cast and crew goes in there, they, they actually have a shrine in the back uh, of the theater. It's a small little space, about half the size of a closet, with all sorts of trinkets. The, there's, no, there's no donuts there now. Uh, they remove them for health reasons. But there's all sorts of other things, ranging from um, just you know, theater slippers and, and photographs and trinkets and little toys and red balls, as far as I know.
2: Wait a minute. Like they were like they were concerned the ghost was going to get high cholesterol.
3: Well, I think it was more a matter of the health inspector didn't want the ants and the <laughs> roaches and other, other miscellaneous nasties coming to. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, I think the idea was that if the ghost isn't going to eat these things, and apparently he wasn't, hmm. that more mundane creatures would. That makes sense. Mother's
1: Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time test to gift around.
2: and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinWagPod and WagOn.
3: Yeah, yeah I was going to
0: ask you about that. Did uh, did he actually eat them like Santa Claus or something?
3: Well, apparently not. Although the the story, uh, depending on which story you look at, uh, apparently there are reports, and by reports I mean a guy wrote something on a blog one time um, <laughs> that uh, at one point. It, there was, when donuts were left out for Bobby, there would be small uh, child size uh, bite marks on the, on the donut. Now, what what does a child size bite mark look like? And, and couldn't uh, couldn't an adult's nibble look exactly like a child's bite mark? I mean, come on. Um, but that was sure a story.
0: I'm sure what? a dentist could uh, could check some dental records or something.
3: Yeah, do some for forensic. That. Forensic odontology, absolutely. Um, But what was was going on was that every Halloween, the local media would trot out this ghost story. Uh, Invariably, one of the local TV stations and or one of the, you know, either the Albuquerque Journal or one of the alternative uh, newspapers, every single year would have, and as we all know, the chemo is haunted by little Bobby, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so it was this recurring thing, and yet uh, other than a couple uh, local ghost hunting groups, and I'll talk more about them later, uh, nobody had really done any investigation into it. So the, the story goes that – and this is, this is where it got interesting was that there actually was a you – know, as, as with many cases, there actually was a death there. And what had happened was that there was a young boy named Bobby Darnell. And he was killed in a, uh, an explosion on uh, August 2nd, 1951. There was a boiler explosion in the lobby of the theater. And Bobby and a couple of his friends and some of the theater goers uh, were there. They were there to see a, an Abbott and Costello film. A, a siren in, in one of the films scared little Bobby, and he ran into the lobby uh, just at the, at the wrong time. And that was when uh, a boiler, um, a water boiler, exploded into the lobby, killing Little Bobby Darnall and injuring several other people. You know, this is this certainly really happened. Um, You can you can find it in the in the August 1952 Albuquerque Journal. And so there's pictures of Darnall and and all that. But the story goes that years later, the story goes that years later, there was a a supernaturally ruined performance uh, at the chemo theater that that was attributed to to Little Bobby. And that's sort of where the story behind the uh, the leaving the donuts uh, came from. Um, it, what happened was that there was a a performance of a Christmas Carol. What happened was that the, uh, the and, and this this story is repeated by uh, Dennis Potter, the uh, the current technical director who was there at the time, uh, tells the story again in multiple iterations in in the uh, on TV and in in, uh, in newspapers and on, on websites. He talks about how this group came there and they were doing a performance of a Christmas Carol. The director of the play saw these donuts that had been left up for Bobby, uh, and he said, "Well, what are, what are these donuts doing here? I, this is you know, this is ridiculous. We're we're doing a play, here, you know, set in set in a depression. You've got donuts in the back of my set. Take them down." And of course, everyone said, "No, don't take the donuts down." Right. So this big production, is you know the it's the, the typical you know, no, you'll scare the ghost, and and the guy's like, "I don't believe in ghosts. Just take the damn donuts down." So sure enough, they they took the donuts down very reluctantly, and that led allegedly to to what certainly was claimed to be uh, one of the highest profile uh, poltergeist cases in, in history. Um, allegedly. Um, Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Uh, there were actors who uh, forgot their lines. Actors tripped over each other. Uh, parts of the, the scenery flew up in the air um, unbidden. Um, <laughs> uh, the lights exploded. Just basically anything that could go wrong did go wrong in front of, you know, hundreds of people in the audience and certainly the entire cast and crew. So, this, so were, this, all,
0: were all of these actors, sorry to interrupt, were all of these actors aware that the donuts had been taken away?
3: Well, see, there's 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 an the interesting question. Um, yes, uh, apparently so, because again, you, you have to remember that everyone was making a big deal about uh, how the the director, um, a guy named Andrew Shea, was not supposed to take the donuts down. So the cast and crew were apparently nervous about you know invoking little Bobby's wrath, little six year old boy, um, for that. And so, and so this this will of course, course intrigued me because. If true, and let me emphasize, if true, then uh, again, this would be one of the highest profile documented poltergeist cases, cases in history. Um, hundreds of people seeing presumably paranormal activity. You know, I, I was, of course, skeptical about it, but I, I wanted to look into it. And at first, I thought that it was just um, an urban legend. I, I kind of, my, my first inclination was that somebody had just, you know, Made up something or whatever else, and that there was really no truth behind it. Uh, but in fact, I found out that there there in fact was a performance um, of a *Christmas Carol*, and uh, there was some there was some question about when it occurred. Uh, some people said it was in the '70s. Some people said it was uh, in the '50s. Um, and some people thought it was in the uh, in the '80s. And so at that, that's sort of where I came into the case was af- after doing some historical research on it. I realized that the, the version that appeared in most of the accounts uh, could not be true because that was set in, in uh, 1974. Um, and the reason that couldn't be true <clears throat> was because in 1974, the chemo theater did not have a, – a, on Christmas Day 1974, the chemo theater did not have a production of A Christmas Carol. In fact, it was a porn theater. Uh, and they were actually showing a, a film called Teenage Fantasies. Uh, the, the subtitle was, If Throat Made You Tingle, This Will Make You Twitch.
2: But, but the donut ghost people glazed over that.
3: They did glaze over that, yes. just like <laughs> a glazed donut. It was, it was curious. So, uh, so it was
0: a very traumatic experience for little Bobby
3: well uh, yeah exactly. this is the worst christmas <laughs> carol ever <laughs> this sucks man what are these people doing so that was that was my concern was that you know i figured if if little bobby was in fact disturbed by something it was probably the bad 70s porn instead of the lack of do <laughs>
0: they're um, always little aren't they little timmy and little bobby yes yes poor,
3: poor, poor little timmy little jimmy little, little bobby um so so essentially that was the first step was establishing uh, establishing the particulars. Um, when when did this happen, this this massive, ruined, supernaturally ruined play? And establishing the date was, of course, the first step. I quickly realized that the, the most common version of the story could not be true because, uh, again, it was a porn theater in 74. I went and contacted Dennis Potter, who, again, was the technical director at the at the, uh, chemo theater and is still there to this day. And he was there that night. And he said, "No, no, no." He he said it wasn't in '74. It happened much later, um, uh, in the '80s. Although he, oddly enough, didn't remember the date or even the year. Um, I found that kind of odd. I think that if I had witnessed a supernaturally ruined <laughs> performance, I might remember roughly what year it was. But in yeah. any event, his memory was a bit fuzzy. Yeah, but again, he he was one of the main sources of the story, and so I, so as I as I dug more and more into it, I kept looking for um for you know other eyewitnesses i mean if if this happened and and again th- you have to understand this ruined performance of the, of the christmas carol is the crux of the case mm-hmm. um, that is the the case zero essentially that that's where all this stems from was the night that the donuts were taken down and bobby had his revenge everything really hinges on this and so presumably there would be Dozens or hundreds of witnesses to this, and I was eager to to uh, to to talk to them. And I began, of course, with uh, with Dennis Potter, who again was there that night. Uh, I expected him to uh, sort of say, "Well, no, we all made it up," and and he said, "No, he said I was there that night, and that's what happened." So that sort of put an interesting turn on it because I had a first person eyewitness account of poltergeist activity. Who you know he was there that night, I and mean, that's that's where he works that 's what he does, and he swore up and down, he said, "I know for a fact this happened. I saw it." And he said, you know I saw the actors tripping on things. I saw pieces of scenery flying across the the stage. I saw the lights exploding. I saw these things
0: so it wasn't recorded at all
3: Well no, it, it wasn't recorded, um, which in and of itself isn 't necessarily a given Christmas play in a theater, and right. I mean, of course, that would have been excellent, but unfortunately, it wasn't. So I interviewed Mister. Potter at length, got all his information, and then I said, okay, well, let me talk to other people. And so I, I tracked down several other people who were involved in the play. I tracked down the director of the play, Andrew Shea, who's now in Texas. And I also talked to among other people the 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 man that played Bob Cratchit in the play, uh, a guy named uh, Schwartz, Steve Schwartz. I, I tracked him down and and I said, what what can you tell me about this? The night that Bobby ruined your play, and he said, um, "Well, it went great. It was a wonderful performance." Wow, uh, that's a direct quote. I said, "Okay, I I may have misinformed here, but um, I understand that you know everything went wrong." He, he says, um, "No, I, I don't know what Dennis is talking about. I, I was there that night. I was in the play. Nothing bad happened. It, it went fine."
2: Yet all the people in the audience reported having seen three ghosts,
3: <laughs> spookily enough. And so, okay. And so I, you know, I recorded the conversation, I took notes and everything. And so then, then I tracked down uh, Andrew Shea, the, the, who directed the play. And I, I, because you know, it's it's possible. We've got two different people. Two different people remember things differently. It's entirely possible that in fact the play, you know. Weird things happened, and, and, you know, the actor in the play just didn't remember it. I mean, so I needed to have at least a third source, if not if not more. So for a third um, opinion of what happened that night, I contacted the director, Andrew Shea, uh, and he said the same thing. He said, quote, there were no events during my eight years there that didn't have mundane explanations. I don't remember anything supernatural or out of the ordinary happening. He says, I don't, I don't remember it being a disaster in any way.
0: So things might have happened over the course of time, but everything had a natural explanation.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, he said that over eight years, he said, you know, nothing. He said, yeah, I mean, people would lose their keys or, you know, and of course, you also have to to remember, um, as both of you do but but our, our listeners m- might not that um, theater folks are are very superstitious um, you know oh yeah <laughs> one of the first places that you're going to find ghosts is in theaters uh, they everything from not saying the names of certain Shakespeare plays to uh, you know knocking on wood um, breaking so th- legs <laughs> exactly breaking legs this and that so theaters are inherently prone to superstition anyway mm-hmm. and when you layer on top of that. The actual historical fact of, you know, there there was a six-year-old boy named Bobby who did die in an explosion at that theater. That that's certainly true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you sort of you sort of see how this 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 came about. And what was fascinating to me was that in many ways, um, you know, I tracked the story down to uh, Dennis Potter to to one man. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many places uh, on the web and in magazines and books where you'll see references to the chemo ghost. Um, and there are one or two people who, you know, say they saw something here or there. But but the vast, vast majority of the story all comes down to Dennis Potter. It's just about everything comes from something he said or quoted him wherever else. And so what was interesting was, you know, in, in my doing all these investigations, it's very rare for me to be able to track down you know where did this come from? This came from Dennis Potter. That's that's where the story came from, uh, is to be able to nail it down so specifically. And I, in addition to Andrew Shea and, and Mr. Schwartz, I talked to a couple other people and, who were involved in it. And again, nobody else remembered that. And I also went back and did uh, archive research in the Albuquerque Journal. And I looked up the reviews um, in the journal, in the, in the Albuquerque Tribune. And uh, the reviews said it was a great show. Uh, you would think that... <laughs> you would think that if you know uh, a performance was so bizarrely and supernaturally ruined by a ghost or anything else, somebody might have mentioned it <laughs> in the in the reviews the following day. But uh, but that wasn't the case. Um, that's,
2: that's a good uh, example of looking at uh, parallel sources to find pieces of evidence that kind of answer the question. The idea of looking at uh, the reviews that's that's not necessarily an obvious thing to go check. So good job.
3: Yeah, I mean, again, it was, well, thanks. I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, I wanted to insulate myself from the accusation that I'd only, well, you know, you only talked to one or two of the other people. Well, first of all, this this play actually happened, uh, I think we narrowed it down to uh, 90, I'm forgetting that it's off the top of my head, it's like, it was a, it actually, no, it was actually like 86 or 87. It was fairly recently. I wanted to sort of have an objective third person you know, account of this, who who was there that night, and and, and in a way, I mean, I was kind of, I, I was happy that I had sort of gotten that far with it. I was slightly disappointed that I didn't get a chance to talk to dozens of people who who could provide me with eyewitness accounts of paranormal activity. I mean, I, I was kind of looking forward to that, but uh, that didn't that didn't seem to be the case uh, with the chemo ghost.
0: So I guess the big question is why? What were his motives for? starting this story or for spreading the stories
3: well that's you know that's that's of course you know the the crux of it um i can't you know after talking to to the director and the guy that played bob Cratchit and other people i you know i went back to to dennis potter and i said um (laughs) mr potter i i don't mean to cast aspersions on your recollection here um but apparently you're the only person that remembers this. And he kind of looked at me and said, well, you know, I know what I saw. And, and which is, of course, the common frame that we all hear. Well, I know what I saw. Yes. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, I, you know, w- 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 what do I do with that? Um, and so, you know, there are a couple ways you can look at it. As an investigator, my my preference is to not cast aspersions on people's uh, on people's motives. Um, you know there are plenty of liars and hoaxers out there, but there are many more who simply just misunderstood or misremembered something. Mm-hmm. And unless I have hard evidence that somebody is flat out hoaxing, um, I tend to attribute it to um, to you know ordinary misremembering and things like that. And so, in in the case of 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 Dennis Potter, who again remember you know every Halloween he's on TV, mm-hmm. <laughs> every <laughs> Halloween he's being quoted in the paper because. He's the guy that's telling the story of the chemo ghost. I think there's a couple things to it. The first one is that the chemo theater was getting some publicity from their resident ghost. I mean, I I don't want to I don't think that was the main thing. I think in many ways, a lot of the people there were really found it more of a nuisance than anything else. But it's certainly true that there was some incentive for Dennis to 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 continue the story. But But the other thing that was was interesting to me was was talking to him and again when i confronted him with with the the contradictory r- reports he just sort of shrugged and said well you know i don't know why they're saying that he was it was it was really interesting to me you know coming from a background in psychology to see just how convinced he was that his recollection i mean he swore he looked me in the eye he swore to me he said i saw this happen and my answer is I believe you, but <laughs> it didn't happen. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the the overwhelming evidence is that what you're telling me simply did not happen. And again, I don't I don't like to call anyone a liar or a hoaxer. Um, but so I, I I really think that he simply uh, misremembered um, what happened. I, I don't know exactly where where he got it. Uh, he did say something along the lines of, if these different things had happened over the course of a long time, he wouldn't have thought. It was, you know, unusual. But because in his memory all these things happened in the same evening, to him that was, that was you know, conclusive evidence that in fact there was something unusual going on. And so what I think, I think happens, I think he just compressed different unusual things, you know, maybe a, a light burst at a weird time or, what, what you know, take your pick. I mean any number of things that a person might attribute um, to an un, unusual presence, again, within the context of a theater. So, I think that's where it came from, um, and and there, of course there were also some local ghost hunters
0: perpetuating the stories and yeah, getting some yeah. mileage out of them.
3: Yeah, well it was well, well the well, news yeah. likes
2: to do that too. So
3: right, well in fact it was uh, <laughs> it was it was bizarre. I. I uh, I went and, and did some there was, – there's was a group called um, New Mexico Paranormal Investigations. And they're a group of, you know, very typical, well-meaning, somewhat less than skeptical and scientific investigators who had done investigations that I'm, I'm sure we're all familiar with and were probably virtually identical to what uh, Karen saw at Waverly. Lots of orbs, lots of EVPs, you know, lots of this and that. Um, and in their investigations, uh, and I'm I'm using the the scare quotes because you can't see it on, <laughs> on the microphone, but I'm using the scare quotes investigations. Um, they had uh, taken pictures of orbs. They had uh, just this and that and the other. And one of the things they they had on their website, I think it's since been taken down, um, thankfully, but they had a photograph of an orb uh, at the top of the stairs, and it said note the note the you know in this photograph on their website the orb at the top of the stairs where where Bobby died. And, of course, the implication being that the orb is Bobby's spirit because it's, it, it is being seen and photographed at the place where Bobby died. Well, no. Actually, if, if the ghost investigators had done a little more research, they would have uh, discovered that in the uh, Albuquerque Journal and the coverage um, on, let's see, on August 2nd, 1951, they would see that, in fact, it states that Bobby did not even die at the theater. Uh, when Bobby, uh, Bobby actually died on his way to the hospital and he was alive. He had a pulse when, when he left the theater. So not only did Bobby not die on the stairs where the ghost hunters found his alleged orb ghost, he didn't even die at the theater. Uh, it's certainly true that he was fatally injured at the theater. And that's, that's, that's true. But the idea that, you know, Bobby died here and we can still sense his spirit, Simply isn't true. Um, mm-hmm. If if that's true, then Bobby's haunting an ambulance somewhere, <laughs> somewhere yeah. in a parking lot.
0: Exactly made up after the fact.
3: <laughs> yeah, and and I see and, and another quick element to this was, uh, and again, this is something that we all encounter routinely, uh, was that the vast majority of the uh, the the stories about the chemo ghost were simply copied from one place to another. Um, there was virtually no real investigation virtually no nobody making any effort to 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 determine if any of this is, is true um, as far as i could tell i was the first person to actually contact one of the uh crew of the the christmas carol and ask them i mean this is this isn't rocket science it's like mm. all right this everyone's saying this happened you say this happened Let me talk to the director. The director says this didn't happen. All right, well, we have a problem here. But unfortunately, all the ghost hunters um, didn't. They were so busy copying from each other, uh, making Mm -hmm. stuff up, adding stuff to their websites. In fact, uh, in the process of this, I actually, the the head of one of the most prominent local ghost hunting groups, uh, plagiarizing vast amounts of a chapter on, um, on the chemo ghost from an earlier book. Um, just, it was just word for word. That's not
2: plagiarism. It's ghost writing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You need to put some rim shots in this. Um, but it was, it was just, it was amazing to me. And, and again, it just reinforced what I found over and over again, which is that, um, that you know, a lot of the people who claim to be ghost hunters and ve- claim to be investigators, uh, they do nothing of the sort. They they just uh, they just read something on it, they cut and paste it, and then they call that their investigation. So hey, that's that was sort of interesting. Anyway, so just to wrap up, so basically that that all came about. The guy that I caught plagiarizing uh, the stuff on his website. Um, at the time that I was doing the, the, the my chemo ghost investigation, uh, they had said, well, you know, we've done investigation here and we think there may be evidence of ghosts. Oddly enough, after I published my work in, in Skeptical Inquirer, I, I happened to visit their website and suddenly there's a little note saying, We've now decided that the chemo is not haunted. No, like it's no their reference. assessment. Yeah, 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 by the way, right? No reference to my work. No reference to, you know, <laughs> who, who showed that. It's like, yeah, we, uh, we're, we're, th- we're not sure, but we're thinking it's not haunted. Um, we'll move on to the next case.
0: Very impressive.
3: Uh, yeah, and actually it was, it was funny because uh, when I was doing the interviewing the, the folks from the New Mexico Paranormal Investigations Group, I met with uh, two of them, actually a brother and sister, I believe. And I met with them in the early stages of the chemo ghost story. We sat down in a, in a cafe in Albuquerque, and they started out by talking about... Um, the, talking rather disparagingly about some some asshole skeptic who had researched the Santa Fe Courthouse ghost several years earlier, and about yeah, you know, well, you know, I don't, yeah. So, yeah, we've done all these investigations, and then you know, there's some there's some guy around here he thinks he's a I don't know he did something on the on some video in the in Santa Fe court. he doesn't know what he's talking about, and I gradually realized they were talking about me. <laughs> and
2: did it bug you?
3: No, it's, it's, uh, And uh, so, you know, I, I was just, I was like, interesting. Tell me more. I said, oh, yeah, he just doesn't know what he's doing. He calls himself a scientist, blah, blah, blah. So they're just, just wow. and it was great. And I said, well, um, okay. I mean, I, it's interesting. I mean, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I said, well, I said, I'm just curious. Um, what exactly did you find so wrong with his work? I mean, did you, was he wrong about something? Well, no, he was basically right, but we, we just don't like how you approached it. Like, oh, okay, well, my bad, you know, whatever. Did you so reveal
0: that, your identity?
3: Uh, I I did. I didn't at the time. Uh, I think the later on figured it out. Um, <laughs> nice. But, uh, yeah, that was a lot. Yeah, that's, wow,
2: wow. Um,
3: in, in a nutshell that's my that's the, the uh, no, no
2: that's the, good you've covered a lot of stuff like uh and we talked about w- talking to witnesses uh, and see if their stories match up which in this case they don't mm. corroborative evidence and uh, finding primary sources the thing the main thing that you Talked about though there that I thought was really interesting. First, listeners, people who go do ghost investigations and break out the EMF equipment um, and don't bother to do the historical side really are missing the point of you know trying to find out whether anything is going on at all. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and, and um, and what is it you talked about uh, here the Hyman's categorical imperative, Ben? And you want to talk about that? Yeah,
3: I mean, basically, I mean that that's a dictum uh, created by uh, CSI um, fellow Ray Hyman, who's a psychologist at the University of Oregon, and um, just an, an amazing guy. He, he's done all sort. Of, he's a he's a psychologist and a statistician, and he does a lot of stuff. But he came up with what's called the Hyman's categorical imperative, uh, which is sort of a, a fancy way of basically saying uh, that before you Try to explain something. You should make sure that there's something to explain before you start chasing your tail and trying to figure out. You know how did this? How did this come about? The que- the first question should be: Did it come about? So, invoking that, um, I didn't. You know, I, you know, I could have begun my investigation in of the chemo case in many different ways. I could have asked to do an overnight vigil <laughs> for whatever reason. I could have, uh, you know, tried to. I could have hired some actors to recreate a Christmas carol and try to figure out how prop, you know, parts of the scenery could have flown. You know, I mean, I I could, you know, you could do that, but, but instead of going to all that, uh, first, you know, find out, did this really happen? And in this case, as you point out, is a very good example of, no, it didn't happen. There's, there's really nothing to explain.
2: And also, you know, if, one of the things you can look at is whether or not any piece of evidence would falsify the whole claim. Um, you know, for example, in, um, your Rose Hall case, it would like the nutshell version. Ultimately that ghost is not even based on a real person.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll give a quick rundown on, on uh, the white witch of Rose Hall. It's a, it's a case, um, in Montego Bay, Jamaica that I investigated a couple years back. And, um, Basically, it's it's uh, this giant mansion, this what's called a great house, um, that was uh, used um, 150 200 years ago, and it's allegedly uh, haunted by um, the, a woman named Annie Palmer, the, the White Witch of Rose Hall, supposedly. And um, as you know, again, going back to Waverly, uh, it's supposedly a, a place of Horror and death and unspeakable cruelty and some sadism. It always is, right? And I, mm. it, it never happens when I'm there. Um, <laughs> apparently, there are all sorts of you know stories about, uh, about Annie Palmer and this and that. And, and in fact, there was a there was a uh, a book uh, by H. B. Delisser, uh, Herbert Delisser, uh, titled "The White Witch of Rose Hall," upon which uh, it was a it was sort of a. A bodice-ripping novel, in some ways, uh, uh, set I think eighteen eighties or something, a little later. Um, that you know was that sort of told the fictional story of Annie Palmer and you know and her haunting Rose Hall, but it was allegedly based on a real woman named Annie, Annie Palmer. Um, all that is really exciting and interesting until you actually do some research uh, and you realize that, that there was no Annie Palmer. Um, so the, the people who go to Rose Hall and say that they're communicating with Annie Palmer's ghost and they're photographing her spirit, they're photographing a fictional character's ghost. I mean, there's, there's nothing there. And, and I, I should add that, uh, that the, uh, the White Witch of Ro- Rose Hall is uh, chapter 13 in my upcoming book, Scientific Paranormal Investigation, How to Solve Unexplained Mysteries. Due out later this year. Cool. And I, I understand there's a couple other people who contributed to that.
2: Excellent! I look forward to reading it. They're
3: As, well, really you cool. Should, didn't <laughs> didn't did uh, didn't didn't you guys uh, like contribute something?
2: I believe. Why, I yes, yes, I believe I did. Yes,
3: that is awesome. Well, why don't you why don't you just take a second to say what you contributed?
0: Oh, don't do that to us. I can't remember.
3: <laughs> yeah, I well, I'll give you a hint. Yours is on Waverly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is a great tie-in, Karen. So oh, I, yeah. I, I think
2: I contributed on, uh, didn't I do something about the basics of uh, ghost photography? Yes. I believe I did. And and, and that's, you know, um, in fact, I, a lot of the my ghost photography information comes from my investigation into the Ghosts of the Watertown ship. Yes, tell us about that. Well, I would like to tell you about that, but we're running really short on time.
0: Monster dog.
2: Thanks for listening to Munster Talk. That ends part one of our two-part discussion of historical paranormal investigations. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about my investigation of the SS Watertown ghosts, the write-up of which is currently in the UK April edition of 40 and times magazines and which will be in the U S may edition. We'll also get much deeper into how to do your own scientific paranormal investigation and talk about Ben's new book on the topic, which will be out soon as a reminder Monster Talk is produced with the wonderful help of Skeptic Magazine. Do you want to look smart but don't have the money for an iPad? Get Skeptic Magazine. It's cheaper, it's bendy, and you can use it during landing and takeoff. Want to read more from myself, Ben, or Karen? Go to monstertalk.org and you'll find links to all the places where we post. Thanks again for listening. Monster Talk theme music by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Intro music was Vampire Organ by Jeff Rosiana, Both used by permission. Stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society. Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the
3: Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. So, does this uh, microphone make me sound uh, like uh, Barry White?
2: Uh, It makes you sound white. (laughs)
3: oh zing
1: yes mother's day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day from movement whether your mom is into classic dress watches rare and refined ceramics or tried and true bestsellers movement has something she'll love and right now everything at movement is up to 50 percent off site-wide during their mother's day sale